All right. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Anne Bertolotti. I'm a program leader at the MRC Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge in the UK. And today I'm here uh, to uh, try and hope to uh, perk your interest on protein phosphatases. These are a class of enzymes that control pretty much every aspect of life, and yet they've been very much neglected uh, in the past. They were thought to be unselective and undruggable, but I will tell you in a set of three talks today uh, that uh, this has uh, changed uh, recently. Uh, but before I get there, uh, I'd like to give you a short uh, biography as a mean of an introduction. Um, and the point I, I would like to make with this is uh, that not only science uh, is great fun, but the careers that come uh, with it are also uh, very exciting too. Uh, I trained in Strasbourg in the northern east part, eastern part of France as a biochemist, and I then moved to uh, New York. This is where, as a postdoc, I began my work on the cellular defense against uh, misfolded proteins. I then uh, set up my lab for a few years, uh, initially in Paris, until I moved to Cambridge, uh, where I have been since 2006. So most of the work I'm going to discuss today has been um, carried out in Cambridge, although uh, some parts started uh, in Paris. So, as I said, I will give uh, three talks uh, today. The first will be uh, this talk, uh, where I'll, I'll give you my own uh, perspective on the historical uh, discoveries of protein phosphatases. In the second talk, I'll uh, share with you some of uh, the work that was carried on in my own lab, where we discovered how we can selectively inhibit a phosphatase. And in the third talk, I will uh, outline for you a set of principles that can help uh, everyone, I hope, uh, studying uh, phosphatases and identify uh, selective phosphatase inhibitors. And in the background of all this, uh, I'll illustrate for you the power and the benefit of selective phosphatase uh, inhibition in the context of uh, neurodegenerative diseases. But first, uh, I want to give you a general uh, introduction to make sure we all start uh, on the same page. So, all the information uh, that is required uh, to uh, sustain life is encoded uh, in our DNA, and then this information needs to be transcribed into messenger RNAs that then will be translated uh, into proteins. And proteins are, uh, uh, e will execute uh, the vast majority of cellular function. So a protein is a sequence of up to 20 different amino acids, and what determine a protein function is not only the sequence of amino acids, but also uh, the way a protein folds. And protein folding is very important, and in addition, uh, failure to fold proteins leads to their accumulation, and accumulation of misfolded proteins is a huge problem for cells and organisms, as I will touch on in my second and third talk, and I'll tell you that accumulation of misfolded proteins causes neurodegenerative diseases. But in today's talk, I will focus on another element, which is very important in controlling the function of proteins, and this occurs after a protein has been made, and therefore this is called uh, post-translational uh, modifications. And why is this important? Uh, well, life depends on our ability to adapt quickly to the many changes uh, in our ex external or internal 
environment that occurs uh, all the time. And the way we adapt to changes is by controlling the presence or the absence of uh, proteins, which carry out, as I said, uh, the function that are uh, important for our cells and our uh, organisms. Uh, so, uh, to control the levels of, of proteins, uh, we have controls at every step of uh, the flow of information in the cell. Transcription can be controlled, translation can be controlled, but we can also control protein abundance by controlling its uh, degradation. So, all these steps are very important, but it all takes uh, a lot of time. So, post-translational post modification are a really a quick way to add a little modification to a protein, and in this way, turn on or off uh, its function. So, there are about 200 different post-translational modifications that have been identified uh, so far. But today, in this talk, I will focus on arguably the most uh, prevalent one, which affects uh, a very large number of proteins in our cells, and in this way controls pretty much all aspects of life. And this modification is uh, the phosphorylation of proteins. So I'm going to start with uh, giving you an overview of the historical discoveries in phosphatase biology, and I hope uh, you'll find that uh, fascinating. Uh, I certainly do. So, I'm going to start um, in 1943 and take you in the lab of uh, Carl and Gertie Corries, who uh, were then uh, studying um, enzymes important for glycogen metabolism, and particularly they were interested in an enzyme called phosphorylase, which is an enzyme that uh, catalyzes the breakdown of glycogen, so a very important enzyme. And they noted that this enzyme can exist uh, in two uh, forms, one uh, called phosphorylase B, which is actually inactive, uh, which differ from the active form, phosphorylase A, in that uh, it has a little addition of something that they realize is not a protein, uh, but they called it a prosthetic group. It's a non-protein group. And they realized rightly that this uh, group is actually tightly bound uh, to the protein. It's actually covalently bound. And to be removed, it needed uh, an enzyme that is present in a muscle extract. And this enzyme, they call it uh, PR for a prosthetic group removing enzyme. And you'll see later that this turned out to be, in fact, a phosphatase. So this was an important discovery. They realized in this way that uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, an enzyme, the activity of an enzyme can be uh, controlled. And for the, this discovery, uh, they won a Nobel Prize. But the uh, nature of this small uh, modification took actually many more years until uh, it was uh, discovered. And I'm going to tell you about this in the next uh, slide. So the discovery of uh, protein kinase took actually, uh, as often in science, a very tortuous uh, route. And this began uh, with Ed Krebs, who was uh, a postdoc uh, with the Corries. And he, when he moved away and started his own lab, he actually failed repeatedly uh, to produce the active phosphorylase A that he used to produce uh, in the Corries lab. And instead of, of uh, giving up in the face of failure, he actually teamed up with Ed Fisher, and together they converted uh, this uh, problem in, as you will see, a prize-winning uh, discovery. So, what they did, they actually scrutinized the different steps 
of uh, the purification as they were uh, doing it in their own lab and compare that with rigor and diligence to the purification procedures that the Corys had established. And they realized that there was a key step required to purify active uh, phosphorylase A. And this key step involved filtration of the tissue homogenate through paper filters. And they went as far as burning the paper filters and added that and realized that this was sufficient to recapitulate the effect of the filtration, leading them to realize that the active component was actually an inorganic component. And this was, in fact, a metal ion. And in this way, uh, they realized that they can convert their failure, namely the inactive phosphorylase, phosphorylase B, into an active enzyme by incubating it with uh, metal ion ATP and a cell lysate. And this was the first discovery of protein phosphorylation. And this is a very important uh, discovery. This is a discovery of a kinase, in fact, and it's a very important discovery because not only protein phosphorylation controls in this way the activity of phosphorylase A, but as I will show you later, it also controls the activity of many, many uh, enzymes in the cell. So this is a discovery of, of, of very broad significance, and we are very lucky uh, that Ed Fisher himself gave an iBiology talk, and I would like to encourage you to uh, watch it. It's, it's really a fantastic uh, way to learn more about the early days about uh, fr protein phosphorylation. So what is protein phosphorylation? It's a remarkably simple modification of proteins. It consists of the addition of a phosphate group on residues, pre predominantly serine residues, but also threonine, uh, also tyrosine, and some other uh, residues. And this uh, reaction is uh, catalyzed by kinases, which add a phosphate uh, group to proteins. And the, and, and the removal of the phosphate is catalyzed by uh, phosphatase. And in this way, uh, the activity of a protein can be switched on and off. So how does it uh, works? Well, first, let me tell you that uh, this uh, modification has um, a broad range of effects in the cells because it affects a very, very large number of proteins. And I've taken these numbers out of recent reviews uh, from Matthias Mann showing that if you can uh, analyze, identify 14,000 uh, proteins in a, 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 a cell uh, lysate, uh, you may find as many as 1 million phosphorylated peptides. So there's really uh, uh, pro tell you that protein phosphorylation is widespread and modifies uh, the activity of many, many proteins in the cell and in this way controls virtually all aspects uh, of life. So what is the consequence of protein uh, phosphorylation? So this is uh, very interesting. It's a small modification and as you will see, it's very versatile. Uh, why is this? Well, if you add a phosphate group uh, to a protein, uh, this uh, has, it's, it's, it's a small modification, but yet in the context of the size of a protein and, and amino acid, uh, it's, uh, it's a bulky uh, modification which will uh, perturb the way a protein uh, fold, and it will also add a charge because the phosphate group is uh, highly charged. And in this way, this also impacts on uh, the way a protein folds. And because of that, this modification is highly versatile. It impacts uh, on, on, on the function of protein in virtually every possible way uh, one can think of. Protein phosphorylation has been reported to alter uh, protein stability. It can target 
uh, protein uh, to degradation. It's also a way to control protein uh, localization. And obviously, it also impacts on protein-protein interaction. So if you think about a small protein-protein interaction uh, interface, if you add a phosphate group, obviously, this is going to block uh, the way pr two proteins can interact. And conversely, if you add a phosphate group at the surface of a protein, this may create a new interaction site uh, for new uh, interactions. So a highly uh, versatile uh, 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 modification that controls uh, protein in virtually every uh, possible uh, way. And so the way protein phosphorylation was initially described uh, by Fischer and Krebs is a switch that can control uh, the activity of a protein on and off. And, and this can uh, be uh, either way. Uh, but uh, actually, if you think uh, about the fact that um, there are many molecules of a given protein in the cell, Protein phosphorylation can vary all the way from 0% to 100%. And so in this way, I think that uh, protein phosphorylation is perhaps more like acting like a rheostat that can finely tune the activity of proteins to precisely match uh, the demand. So a fine way of controlling the activity of a protein to control, as I said, all aspects uh, of life. So with that, I'll now uh, take you through what I think are key and, and very influential uh, discoveries that have shaped the way uh, people think uh, about uh, phosphatases. So here I'm going to take you in 1973 with another uh, serendipitous uh, finding, uh, which came with um, a, a group uh, trying to uh, purify um, the phosphatase that the Coriad described with their uh, established protocol. But here came a mistake. And through the mistake came something uh, interesting uh, that had uh, quite uh, some influence on the phosphatase field. So uh, in this uh, uh, paper, the author reports that uh, when they uh, purify uh, the uh, phosphorylase phosphatase, here they added uh, ammonium sulfate and ethanol as a precipitation step. And in this way, they precipitated uh, the, the phosphatase. But it turns out that by this way, they recovered an enzyme which was no less than 43 times more active than the protein that had been uh, purified uh, by the Coris. And this came about uh, with the conversion of the enzyme that was normally present in multiple uh, molecular weight uh, species. But through the precipitation procedure, this converted the, the phosphorylase phosphatase into one single molecular weight species of 30 kilodalton. And I want now to summarize this uh, historical uh, paper uh, for you in a cartoon format, because this is a very uh, important finding that had a big influence on, on the phosphatase uh, research subsequently, as you will uh, hear uh, during this talk. So in cells, uh, phosphatase, uh, the phosphatase uh, is present in multiple molecular weight species. And this is because it is bound to uh, one amongst many different other uh, cellular protein. And through the harsh uh, purification procedure consisting in, of mixing ammonium sulfate and ethanol, the phosphatase uh, precipitates, it forms sort of gloops in, in, in the tube, falls out of solution. And out of that, uh, one can recover an active uh, phosphorylase 
uh, phosphatase. It's super active, but it's no longer bound uh, to its uh, cellular uh, cofactor. So one needs to keep this in mind. This is a purified protein, which is very different from the cellular uh, protein. So following this, uh, the following year, in 1995, came the discovery of an inhibitor, uh, inhibitor 1. And this inhibitor was instrumental in um, enabling the characterization of other phosphatases that uh, have been discovered uh, following the discovery of the PR enzyme that then uh, was called uh, by uh, the group of Philip Cohen, who classified and discovered some of these other phosphatases, uh, protein phosphatase 1. So, uh, more phosphatases uh, were discovered, but only uh, protein phosphatase 1 was inhibitable uh, by inhibitor 1. And today, uh, turns out that the phosphatase uh, family has grown. Uh, PP1 is the founding member of a large uh, family of, of phosphatases that is called the PPP uh, family. Now, these enzymes uh, arose from a common ancestor, and uh, because of this, uh, they share a common um, mechanism, and um, which is, uh, has been uh, elucidated here uh, in uh, uh, 1995 uh, by two groups. So, in all uh, PPP, uh, there's in the active site uh, six conserved uh, amino acids, and they are very important in binding two metal ions, which are shown here uh, in blue on this slide. And these metal ions are important because they uh, will uh, uh, activate a water molecule, which will then be able to engage in a nucleophilic attack and attack uh, the phosphate group. And this is how uh, dephosphorylation is uh, carried out by this class of enzymes. Following uh, this, uh, or, or following the discovery of, of inhibitor 1 and more phosphatases, uh, people were looking at uh, phosphatase specificity and how many substrates the different phosphatases were able to dephosphorylate. And uh, initially, uh, the lab of Philip Cohen up in Dundee uh, described the fact that uh, uh, protein phosphatase 1 can actually dephosphorylate many enzymes of uh, glycogen, uh, involving glycogen metabolism. And this was a first step uh, leading to the idea that phosphatases are not selective. They can dephosphorylate many proteins uh, if they come uh, nearby, and um, that's um, how uh, they work. And so, the idea that uh, phosphatases were not selective uh, gained gravitas with the discovery that of many genes encoding serin-threonin kinases. 400 genes encoding serin-threonin kinases were discovered, whilst only about 40 genes encoding serin-threonin phosphatases were known. Uh, so these numbers have, have changed a little bit uh, recently. I'm taking here uh, the numbers from a review uh, from Manning, 500 or so kinases for 100 uh, phosphatases. So the problem remains, right? We have five times more kinases than phosphatases. And that, together with the fact that phosphatases, the purified enzyme, remember, not the cellular enzyme, the purified enzyme in the test tube can dephosphorylate many substrates. This idea, together with the fact that we have many more kinases than phosphatases, led to the notion that phosphatases are not selective. And this was a problem for phosphatase biology, because who wants to study enzymes that are not selective? Who cares? The catalytic mechanism had been elucidated, I told you, in 1995, and if there's no level of regulation there, 
not so many groups were interested in studying this. So much so that um, Phosphatase is where, at some point, uh, called in this uh, beautiful review by uh, David Brottingen, who studied phosphatases for many more years than I have. He called phosphatases the ugly ducklings of cell signaling. That gives you an idea of how bad it was for people to actually even consider studying this class of enzyme. Um, yeah, so th this review is a, is a very interesting uh, one to read. So, I really want to take you uh, with me to take a step back now and think about this uh, notion of selectivity. We mammals have evolved through billion years of evolution, and everything our cells and organisms do has been evolutionarily optimized. I've told you that protein phosphorylation is a very important process that controls the activity of many proteins in our cells. And the dogma at some point was that protein phosphorylation, which is uh, uh, controlled through the antagonistic action of kinases and phosphatases, is on one way selective and on the other way unselective. That doesn't make sense to me, particularly if you think about the fact that uh, any imbalance in protein phosphorylation is highly deleterious. And to illustrate that, I can bring the example of cancer, for example, where abnormal uh, uh, protein phosphorylation is devastating. It needs to be tightly controlled, and so we need selective dephosphorylation as much as we need selective phosphorylation. So I'm going to solve uh, this puzzle for you, uh, and the answer uh, to this problem um, is on this slide. Remember, uh, in uh, the highly purified uh, phosphatase was naked and, and stripped off its cellular cofactor, but in the cell, uh, PP1 is bound to one amongst an array of up to 100 uh, cellular uh, proteins that actually give rise to selectivity. So phosphatases do not act alone. They don't act solo. They are bound to cellular proteins, and it is the complex formed by the phosphatase and uh, the non-catalytic subunit uh, that is highly selective. And so, um, this is uh, very important because here we have not one uh, phosphatase PP1, but actually three, because there's three uh, genes encoding PP1 in mammals. But these three catalytic subunits can be bound to one amongst a uh, hundred of, of diverse uh, 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 cellular proteins. So, in this way, there's a large repertoire of phosphatases. And this holds true for virtually all uh, phosphatases of the PPP family. So here we have solved our selectivity problem. We have at least as many phosphatases as we have kinases. And I will argue that phosphatases are also uh, very uh, selective. So I will now uh, spend the rest of this uh, talk um, uh, going through uh, the mechanism by which uh, selectivity is actually achieved in phosphatases. And I'll start uh, with uh, the um, historical um, findings. So remember, initially, uh, the idea was uh, PP1 is not uh, really uh, selective. In, when highly purified, it can dephosphorylate many substrates. Then came the discovery of inhibitor 
uh, one. And so the idea was, well, phosphatase uh, in the cell needs to be sequestered, need to be sequestered, bound to an inhibitor to prevent it from engaging in non-selective uh, dephosphorylation. So that's one way to control uh, selectivity, but I'd argue that this is not enough to uh, encode the tight selectivity that we need for um, our cells and organisms to function uh, properly. A second uh, level of selectivity came with the uh, discovery of targeting uh, subunits. And the first one came, again, from um, studying uh, glycogen metabolism. Here comes the discovery of, uh, by, the, by the Cohen's um, of a protein uh, that they named uh, GM. G comes from, uh, stands for glycogen and M from muscle because it was purified uh, from muscle. And, and this uh, targeting uh, subunit has the property to bind PP1 on one hand and glycogen uh, on, on the other. And in this way, it concentrates PP1 uh, in a, a glycogen uh, granule. And so, uh, in this way, uh, selectivity is thought to be improved by increasing the local concentration of PP1 in, um, gly uh, around glycogen, where uh, enzymes of glycogen metabolism are also uh, localized. But while this is one way uh, to increase selectivity, it may not be uh, good enough to offer the tight control that one needs uh, for glycogen metabolism. This is a very important uh, uh, physiologically controlled uh, event, and misregulation of glycogen metabolism can cause diabetes, for example. So it may be beneficial to have an additional level of regulation here. And I would suggest that perhaps one needs also to precisely target uh, the um, um, phosphatase to the enzymes that need de de to be dephosphorylated at any given time. So a third uh, idea uh, and, and model to uh, account for the selectivity of phosphatases come from a study uh, in my own lab of two uh, uh, in phosphatases, and we found that the non-catalytic uh, subunit is actually uh, not only uh, recruiting the catalytic subunit PP1, but also very important in providing a high affinity binding site uh, for the substrate. And this uh, led me to propose that uh, PP1 phosphatases are actually split enzymes because they are composed of two uh, components and each of them are essential. You need the two components to be together to form a functional holoenzyme. You need the catalytic subunit, and that's the one that cleaves off the phosphate. But that's of no use if the substrate is not uh, correctly uh, 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 brought to uh, the uh, phosphatase, and that's the function of the non-catalytic uh, subunit. So, uh, in this talk, uh, I started uh, giving you a historical overview of the discovery of phosphatases and how the notion that phosphatases were unselective uh, arose. Uh, I've uh, ended by uh, telling you that actually phosphatases are exquisitely uh, selective, and this is because they are composed of these two components, the common catalytic subunit bound to a selectivity factor, the non-catalytic subunit, which actually is 
uh, important because it serves as a high affinity uh, binding site uh, for the substrate. So because phosphatases were thought to be unselective, they were also thought to be undruggable. And um, in the 90s, uh, inhibitors uh, were developed uh, that inhibit uh, PP1. And it was found that these inhibitors are actually not uh, selective because if you inhibit PP1, which is a component of hundreds of enzyme in the cell. It's not one enzyme that you inhibit, but actually hundreds of enzymes. And that's actually toxic and not very useful. So that led uh, pharmaceutical industry to stop considering phosphatases, although they had recognized that protein phosphorylation was very important for drug discovery. And indeed, kinases have been very, very popular amongst the most popular drug targets in pharmaceutical industry. Recently, uh, in my lab, we found that we can selectively inhibit a phosphatase uh, by targeting its regulatory subunit. And we think that with this paradigm, uh, we can expand and inhibit uh, other enzymes. So if you want to learn about this, how we discovered how to inhibit a phosphatase, and if you want to hear about assays and methods to identify selective phosphatase inhibitors, I'll invite you to join me and listen uh, to the second and the third talk of this uh, series. Thank you very much.